0: Hello and welcome to PathPod. Today we're gathered around the scope to discuss practicing pathology during a cyber attack. Our host, Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke Health, will speak with faculty and staff from the University of Vermont about their experience coping with a cyber attack. Now here's your host, Dr. Jang.
1: Hello and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment Around the Scope. And today we're speaking with colleagues from the University of Vermont who experienced a cyber attack in the fall of 2020 and will share their stories and lessons learned. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jang. I'm a cytopathologist as well as chief of head neck endocrine pathology at Duke. And I'm really excited to have all these guests here today. Let's go around and have our guests introduce themselves.
2: Hey there, my name is Joe Conant. I am a staff pathologist here at the University of Vermont Medical Center. I cover both hematopathology and molecular pathology here.
3: Morning, I'm Andy Goodwin. I'm a pathologist at the University of Vermont Medical Center. I provide transfusion and coagulation clinical services, and um, I am currently the vice chair of quality and clinical affairs for my department.
4: Hi, thanks for having me. This this is a great opportunity. My name is Alexander Kaloff. I am the Division Chief of Anatomic Pathology. I've been in practice about 17 years now. I'm a generalist at heart. I do bone and soft tissue pathology.
5: And I am John McConnell. I am not a pathologist, um, (laughs) although I work with pathologists. I am the Laboratory Systems Architect at the University of Vermont Medical Center, where I play a largely role in the IT liaising relationships with pathology.
1: Wonderful. Welcome everyone. I'm so excited to have you here on the show. And one of our traditions on PathPod is before we launch into the story, we always like to talk to people about what got them into pathology or information systems. And so I'll open it up to whoever wants to share.
3: I'll go. So this is Andy, I completed my clinical clerkship year as a third year medical student. Um, really uncertain as to what I wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do. Came to medical school with every intention of being a general practitioner. And so I signed up for a year of the student fellowship in our department, which is a one year long program for third year medical students in pathology. And it was a life-changing event, I guess you could say. At that time, I actually worked with Alex. She was, I believe a first year resident at that time. So it really was an eye-opening experience that really made me realize I liked being a diagnostician. I really liked understanding the pathophysiology of disease and it really focused my career in becoming a pathologist, I then signed up for all my fourth year electives and every one of them had some sort of relationship to pathology. So glad I made that decision.
4: I love that. That brings back fond memories. I think that's part of the reason why I was attracted to pathology is the collegial relationships, you know, the working so closely with our colleagues. And even though we don't see patients directly many times, we replace those with teaching relationships in our collegial sharing of cases and time at the scope. For me, growing up, I was fascinated with disease. I had a work manual was my bedside reading as a child. (laughs) And and interestingly, I I find the visual aspect of pathology, the most gravitating for me, and I can get lost at the microscope. And it reminds me of being in the dentist's office doing the highlights, search and find, you know, (laughs) where's Waldo type thing, and the viewfinders as a kid. So I get to play, it feels like play every day. So that's what I really enjoy.
1: Excellent.
2: So, this is Joe. My story is surprisingly not that different than Andy's. So, I actually didn't have any intentions of going to medical school at all when I was growing up and through college. I ski patrolled all through college and had no idea what I was wanting to do. So, I started ski patrolling the year after I graduated undergrad, thinking it would kind of tie me over until I figured out what it was that I was going to do with my life. ended up doing that full time for a number of years. And it was kind of through that experience and providing first aid on the Hill that actually made me go think about and go back to medical school. So in medical school, I started thinking I was going to do emergency medicine or ortho trauma surgery, something along those lines, just because that's that was my introduction to medicine. Got through my clerkship year, so my third year, and got to the end of it and said, whoa, I don't know if this is for me. I'm not really sure I'm cut out for this clinical work. I loved seeing patients, but a lot of the other work around it was not what I loved. And so I did med school here at UVM as well. And as Andy mentioned, there is a student fellowship program here that we do between third and fourth year. So I took that year as kind of a reset and say, hey, well, you know, maybe path is for me. And I actually was lucky enough to work with both Andy and Alex in this role. Going through that year, I loved it. I woke up in the morning and I was excited to show up to work every day. Um, and again, the collegial piece too, working with people, talking to people all the time. You know, the stereotype of pathologist being your antisocial person that hides in the basement and doesn't talk to anyone was not my experience. And, and I think it's true across the country and across the world too. We talk to people all the time and it's a fun, fun environment to be in. But then I can also do it on my own terms a bit, right? Like if I had to go do something in the middle of the day, I don't have to shift my clinic schedule around to be able to accommodate something. And so that, that work-life balance is also a huge thing that I think is invaluable as well.
1: Wonderful. And I didn't realize that Vermont was the kind of place where people came and just stuck around forever. Obviously, it's a great department because it sounds like the three of you have been working together for a really long time. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Back to another thing that Joe said is I had no intention of going to medical school. I was not a very good college student, didn't mature academically until later on in life, and um, actually trained to be an airline pilot. Oh, wow. One of the things that I really enjoy about laboratory medicine and germane to the conversation we're going to have around a cyber attack is, laboratory is a big operation. It's a quality-driven operation system, just like aviation. And I think that's one of the reasons that I thoroughly enjoy doing the operational work with obviously Alex being a division chief and Joe, who's constantly updating our operations and hematology. It really lent itself well to my interests and in some of my early skill sets, learning to be a pilot and understanding redundancy in systems and fail-safe systems and risk mitigation and things like that. So, wow.
1: We've heard the analogy building the plane as you're flying it uh, with regards to the pandemic and probably um, your experience through the cyber attack as well. But uh, it really takes it to the next level. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited, John, that you're here with us because not only do you come to us from a different background, but you can you know tell me all the secrets of the pathologists that you work with. So I have all
5: on... Andy's and Joe's emails ready to go. <laughs> the, the doxing begins now. Uh, so I actually, as Andy pointed out, you know I've actually worked closely with the lab for 20 years, but always from an I. IT perspective. I've been at the UVM Medical Center for 20 years, all that time in IT in a very, a varying number of roles. And then actually, believe it or not, today, two years ago, I started in this current role. And it was a part of a con I had with Tanya Hong, who's our network VP for the lab at the UVM Health Network, and my IT boss, Lori Bojoli, who's the VP of Applications, that we wanted to improve and streamline communications between clinical departments. You know, there's different languages being used, right? Different nomenclature. And while I'm not so strong on the clinical side. I could definitely speak geek. So I sort of said, yeah, let's give this a try and see if we can make things go a little better, like get the lab, get their instruments installed a little more smoothly and do their upgrades and started on February 14th. And it was about two weeks after that, that we had our first COVID huddle at 830, figuring out how, what are we going to do? And we're still having those huddles. Although it was just this morning, I was told that I could move my daily COVID total report that I've been sending out every day to weekly distribution. So woohoo, I'm happy. You know, I do play a lot of a role in three areas. One is informatics, analytics, and reporting, getting our data out of our LIS and our electronic health record and into some format that clinical experts can actually use. I also am typically very involved in any new instrument installation or an instrument upgrade. Anything that's going to plug on, plug into the, the university's network has to go through a rather rigorous, you might even say draconian approval process. Since the cyber attack, you know, it's gotten so much, much, worse. But the reality is that we have some rules we have to follow, right? So I can help facilitate that. And then last but not least, is the primary role is just to liaise and make sure that when Joe goes live with her TSO 500 test later this year, that the IT pieces are built and working and tested and ready for her so that people can start ordering it. That's sort of how I spend my days. The occasional mouse replacement, <laughs> the occasional, hey, help. <laughs> you know, Andy's been known to bang on the wall of his office to yeah, so he help me figure this out, but you know, for the most part, they leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that's definitely a lot to try to integrate all those different pieces together and make them work. And from our perspective... You probably don't get a lot of feedback when things are going well. It's usually the complaints uh, when things aren't.
5: Oh, I mean, that's, that's life in IT. And I think to some degree life in the lab, right? Uh, I think that, you know, lab and IT culturally are very similar. It was not a huge adjustment for me. and What Joe said about people, you know, the stereotype of a pathologist being in a dark room and being antisocial is also the nerd stereotype. But what I have found is it's an incredibly collegial place. I've worked there for two years. I've never had a crossword spoken to me. I cannot say that's true of other departments I've worked in, but it's certainly true of this department. And that's why, you know, when after this was sort of a trial balloon, we flew with this role uh, and I got back together with the the two VPs and said, this is great. I love doing this. I love coming to work in the morning. Please don't make me go back. And so we made it formal. And now IT is going through a major reorg and they're going to look to reproduce this role for other hospital service areas, maybe the pharmacy, maybe surgery, what have you. So, you know, the lab is, at least at UVM, in my opinion, sort of leading the way with new organizational thinking, something that I think everyone would agree the organization will benefit from.
3: Yeah. John mentioned Tanya Hong, who is our our network VP for lab operations, who floated this idea during a conversation she and I were having. And as we sat and talked about it and discussed it more and more, it became very clear that, you know, as hospitals bring in these large electronic health records, laboratory really is not in charge anymore Mm -hmm. of the laboratory LIS, Mm -hmm. right? Everything is now run through a centralized IT department. And while there's benefits to that, there's also some significant challenges and having somebody like John to bridge that gap or liaison, as he said, has really been something that is uh, critical. I mean, because our biggest instrument in all of laboratory medicine is that Lab LIS system, right? It runs the entire show, as we're about to talk about. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. and, uh, yeah.
3: and having somebody like John with his knowledge and ability to talk pathology, but also talk IT has been really, really helpful.
1: Absolutely. Kind of being the translator between the two languages. So that's a perfect time, I guess, to start segue into the story of what happened? From your perspective, what were the first signs that something was wrong back in the fall of 2020?
5: So I can sort of give you a high level timeline. So we began a little context here. So information technology follows the hospital incident command center procedure. We have, I'm sure many organizations use it, but it's a certain way of dealing with a crisis, whether it's a mass casualty event, cyber attack. So we started to see systems randomly going offline in various parts of the hospital. Some are going offline and going all the way down and not coming back. Others were going up and down and up and down. We didn't really know what the cause was. So an incident command center was, was started. I was on that incident command center throughout the, that day that this was happening. And then all of a sudden the incident command line was severed. And an email was sent out to the people on the call saying this is now being handled by a smaller team. More information will be coming soon. Uh, and that was when I knew it was probably a cyber attack. No one was really told it was a cyber attack for some time. And so one of the things that I think was hardest for everyone throughout the entire period was that uncertainty of, you know, what exactly is going on. And then the very natural human reaction that everyone had, I know I did, of, oh, my God, was it me? Was it that email I clicked on? You know, the sad truth is it wasn't one of the people on this call, but it was a person who clicked on an email they shouldn't have. That's all it took. The ransomware... Crypto virus that got installed was actually present for a couple of weeks in our systems before it was triggered. Uh, the reason the systems went off, started to go offline is that as they got encrypted, they ceased to function. Sometimes they would go up and down because many of our more critical systems are in a high availability configuration, so that if partner A goes down, partner B picks up a load. So we've, the effect to the end user is I'm working, I'm down, oh, I'm back up, right? And then a minute later it goes down again, and then you're down all the way. So that was really where things began. It was a six-week recovery period from hell for IT. They completely rebuilt the network and all systems. No data or systems that were affected were recovered. We could not ascertain for sure that that data hadn't been damaged, corrupted, or that there might not be something malicious lying in wait to attack us again. Unfortunately, most of these cyber attacks are repeat events because, you know, the attackers realize they've got got a live fish on the line. And we implemented brand new security, so very expensive security software and some admittedly draconian security measures that everybody sort of grumbles about, but we have to live with now. And to say that we were back up and running in six weeks is to summarize. Our electronic health record and LIS were back up in six weeks. I don't think our radiology systems came back for a couple of months because the radiology diagnostic workstations are very complicated. PC configurations, very specialized. Getting those rebuilt was very time-consuming. So that's sort of a highlight of events. It was a virus that someone got via an email from a local vendor. Uh, They were on vacation, actually, and they had this email from a local business that had been attacked. Uh, The email then got into their laptop. When they came back from vacation, it connected the laptop to the UVM network. The virus transited that link found a happy home, and settled in, pretty much just like a real virus would do. And uh, when they felt the time was right, and I don't know what the circumstances were that caused them to trigger it, that was when, you know, they kicked off the encryption routine that brought the systems down. Some things that we did in the lab that were very beneficial, one well in advance of the attack and one during, that I'd like to call out as... uh, positive things for folks to think about. In 2003, when the current lab was literally being built and and we were moving into it, there was a rather vigorous discussion in IT about lab equipment not being allowed on the general UVM Medical Center network, because as I'm sure you're all aware, Most instruments come with a control PC. It's probably running some flavor of Windows in most cases. And so there you are with Windows updates and patches. And of course, these are FDA regulated devices. So the vendors are like, I can't just go willy-nilly applying updates. I've got a process I have to follow. As a result, most control PCs lag behind whatever the current security patching standard is. So one of our network engineers said, why don't we just put a firewall, a network block in between the lab network and the rest of the network, which is what we did. That firewall prevented a single infection in the lab from happening. Not a single control PC or instrument was affected during the course of this cyber attack. The only system in the lab that was hit was a virtual server that got hit because virtual servers don't actually live on that part of the network. They live in the data center and the data center got hit. We replaced that with a physical server, by the way. So that was one one thing that was an extremely important design decision when the network was being built. And I think that most labs would benefit from having that layer of separation. The other thing is that you really can't get on the internet from the lab, what we call the lab VLAN, because, you know, if you're on a control PC, you should not be browsing the internet ever, 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 ever. Right. The second thing that we did was we had this really unusual opportunity during the six-week outage of the cyber attack. It's very difficult to take an accurate instrument inventory when everything's, you can't go around crawling underneath a TCAN or the gene expert or whatever to, to find out where it's plugged into the network when people are trying to run samples. So we had this opportunity and myself and another guy went around and we took two days and we reinventoried everything in the lab. So now we have a very accurate inventory and it's an IT style inventory. I'm less concerned as an IT guy about what test that instrument runs. I'm more interested about what's its network address, right? And what kind of windows is it running? What, you know, do I need to think about upgrading this? And that has enabled us in the year plus since to really solve a lot of those problems we've done our... Mila system for our microbiology section. And we've brought in a number of new instruments and we've been able to leverage both the inventory and the networking decisions that were made to do that with some agility that I think Andy and others would agree is probably about as well as we can do it at the medical center. <laughs> so,
1: Wow. So it sounds like there were some things that worked in your favor that were put in place ahead of time. So. Yes. The
5: thing that I think was most impressive to me was you, you had a bunch of people sitting around, you know, you had technical specialists and supervisors and managers and pathologists all putting their heads together on a daily basis every morning. Okay, this is how many samples we're going to be getting in for COVID. How many are we going to go and run on this machine and that machine? And it was, I sent an email that Thanksgiving and I said, it's easy to say you work for a great team when everything's going well, right? But really great teams are the ones that work well when things are not going well. And this team was, I've never been more impressed. I've been in IT for 33 years, and my mind was made up. And, you know, I've, I've never regretted that decision. Uh, I, I find working in lab incredibly rewarding.
1: Great, great. Well, you know, kind of going back to the pathologist perspective, I wonder if uh, one of you would be willing to share kind of what what it was like for you at the beginning. From an AP standpoint, we lagged a little bit behind our clinical pathologist
4: colleagues because our downtime procedure is basically to stop everything. And we really we weren't sure when things were coming back online. I think once we found out that it was a cyber attack, we kind of knew things were going to be weeks probably out. And so while they had their analytics downstairs able to still run, we had to figure out after day three or so, when things weren't coming back up, we had to figure out how to rebuild basically the the AP laboratory from scratch, which was, it felt like a daunting task. And and it was interesting, too, because our analytics worked, right? Like our pathologists were really anxious to sign out cases. And they could not understand why, you know, why can't I sit down and just look at these cases? Why can't you you just give me some slides? I think oftentimes, too, in crisis, people want to feel useful. And that's their way of kind of controlling the situation and dealing with that anxiety and that uncertainty. So people were literally milling about feeling anxious and really wanting to work. But our our biggest challenge was how do we generate an actionable report processing a specimen and obviously such a complex workflow that we had to go to fully handwritten everything, the gross descriptions, cassettes, glass slides. And so our efficiency plummeted to first zero, and then we built it up to about 10, 15% of our, our you know, normal efficiency. And we diverted specimens to our network hospitals, which was fantastic. That redundancy proved to be really valuable because they had a separate LAS. They had not yet converted to Beaker Epic as we had. And so we actually got emergency credentialing for folks to go down to their hospitals to sign the cases out. And we sent histotechnologists and equipment down there to actually process some of the high volume specimens like Derm and NGI. But really, it was the challenge in the beginning of, of really understanding how are we going to, we had to generate new, you know, reports how are we going to make sure that we're accounting for every step in the process and until we had that workflow literally mapped out and we used some of our quality partners to help us map those workflows out we did not want to process any specimens it was in our minds too much of a patient safety issue so it took us about probably a few days to really
1: start processing in-house Yeah, I think from a user perspective, right, if your microscope turns on, you can put a slide on it, you can see what's on the slide. But from the systems level, patient safety perspective, you Mm got to have that workflow ready to go. Mm -hmm. Are there any resources for, you know, if hopefully this will not happen to another institution, but are there resources that you created or you found to help create those workflows for potential future instances?
4: Yeah, we developed an incident command structure of our own and different huddles throughout the day. We we created through our experience and downtime manual that basically is a Microsoft template of our report to include all the, you know, regulatory requirements and mapped out workflows as as far as what people can use during a downtime. So we've shared that uh, with, you know, whoever needs it really and and are happy to do so, keeping things on hand like folders and You know, USB ports, we basically stored all of our information on that and how to generate kind of a homegrown LIS system of your own in AP. And some of those lessons learned are in that downtime manual. So, and extended downtime, obviously. So we actually have written it up and it should be published with our CP colleagues and AJCP. Some of those kind of important tools and workflows that we found helpful.
1: Great. We'll make sure to find the links to that for the show notes because it sounds very Mm -hmm. useful. Because when I think to how much everything is digitized, right? All our lab SOPs live on the computers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't think we have paper copies of anything, right? Because then you have issues with document control. So... Yeah,
4: that that Andy needs to talk about Media Lab because that saved us. I mean, that was an off, you know, Andy can talk more about it. But that was such a a relief to have those policies available to us, even though we couldn't access them right away with our computers. There was a lot of communication. Communication was a huge, huge Barrier because we were just even our phones were cut off. I mean, nothing, we could not communicate anything. So we had our cell phones that worked and we generated a WhatsApp, you know, call links. And but Media Lab was huge. So I'm going to let Andy talk about that one.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, as I sit here and have pangs of nausea as we recount that yeah,
4: right. you know, PTSD
3: was probably the worst part of my, at least my career. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I mean, there were nights I'd walk home. We've gone through a lot in this department over the past two and a half years. I mean, obviously, everybody's gone through COVID. We went through beaker implementation. We went through cyber attack during a pandemic. There were nights I'd walk home from work and think, "Oh my gosh, I hope we didn't do any serious patient harm today." I mean, that—that's how real it felt. And again, it wasn't intentional. It was a casual. It would have been a casualty war. It was not due to any you know intentional things in the laboratory or the people that were just honest to God you know, working 18-hour days trying to deliver patient care. The operational efficiency was cut by, I mean, orders of magnitude. I mean, Alex talked about how much it took to run an AP specimen. Our chemistry core, high-volume chemistry core, which runs urinalysis, blood gas, and our three chemistry analyzers takes during sort of normal business hours about three techs to run that. We were needing about 10 techs. To run just chemistry core during the downtime. So the operational efficiencies were crazy. Having SOPs available. So you know, Alex brought up Media Lab. That's our electronic document control system. You know, there's many out there. I'll put a plug-in for them because they were built by medical technologists. It was a group of med techs that recognized what document control is required in the lab. Web-based. So when we had access to web, including on our phone, you could get to our policies and procedures. We had backup USBs. We back up our document control system once a week. So we were able to plug in USBs to local PCs and people could get access that way. But then we used it as our main communication tool out to our clin- clinical colleagues, because let's be honest, a laboratory report out of the CP lab was not pretty. It was an instrument printout, right? So if you're a clinician wanting to order an unfractionated heparin level and someone hands you a report that says anti-10A activity, they're like, what the heck is this? So we were literally at times writing the name of the test on the instrument printout. No reference ranges, no units of measure, no comments, none of that stuff available. So we posted, we made a bunch of different files, useful documents for clinicians And posted it through our document control system, open access, and posted QR codes around the hospital. And they could just scan the QR code on their phone and it would give them reference ranges. It would give them reflex testing. It would give them the calculations to do all the calculated values that are. LIS system was no longer able to do during this time. So that became an extremely important tool to us. Just one of the many things that we really had to leverage during this unprecedented attack. Alex mentioned communication. UVMMC built this beautiful brand new five-story inpatient unit. Guess what? All the phones are software driven. Guess what? All the faxes are software driven. Guess what? None of those work when the software's turned off. So guess what? Your pneumatic tubes don't work. I mean, everything literally shuts down. It's just amazing. How pervasive IT is to running a healthcare organization. And uh, so all of those things became fully manual. We had to get analog faxes installed in our laboratory and we set up inpatient and outpatient result centers and we faxed results all day long. And to those floors that couldn't receive fax, we had runners running back and forth. So a significant resource that one needs when they go through this is they need people. They need people. We had volunteer lists. We had Facebook pages put up to ask people to come volunteer. Medical students were coming in research staff from the medical, from the university were coming over. We were training anybody and everybody that had a pulse and a social security number. Um, So, yeah. yeah.
2: I will say that that's one of the biggest things that I took home from this whole, incident is that even though we were stopped completely in our tracks in terms of being able to turn out results and report the community that rallied together across the entire hospital across the whole er- the region to come in and help put out reports to help act as runners, as bouncers. So we had bouncers that for all of the samples that would come into the laboratory, we had to look at the requisition, look at the sample and make sure everything had a patient, the typical name, date of birth, identifiers, but then also what floor is this getting called back to? Is there a contact number so that we knew where to fax reports to or you know, put in a particular bin for runners to come grab on every hour to go deliver test results all across the hospital? I functioned as a runner for a while when HePath essentially stopped in its tracks and short of you know the peripheral blood smears that we were looking at, the bone marrow biopsies and the lymph node tissues and stuff like that, the volumes decreased significantly. And so we had time to chip in and essentially help out. Yeah, it's not my job, but you know, everyone I think chipped in where they could to help us remain as efficient as we were able to in this manual process. And I think I actually went to parts of the hospital that I never knew existed or had never been to before. And so it was fun to actually be able to get out out of the laboratory and into the other parts of the hospital. There was no way that I wasn't going to get my 10,000 steps in (laughs) on any given day, right? Uh Like we're just, we're running around all day walking around. Yeah, we're not picking up phones anymore. We're going and knocking on people's doors, you know, saying hi.
1: I'm curious, were your flow cytometers working?
2: They, so they were working. So the hard part with heme is that we integrate so much stuff together. We look at prior history, we look at clinical notes, we look at CBC results. All of a sudden, when you have to interpret something in a vacuum without all of that information, you realize how dependent you are on everything, right? So yeah, I mean, yes, our flow cytometers were working, we're able to put together reports. Hempath was very much like AP, you know, with our colleagues upstairs in terms of churning out reports that were written on Word documents. We had templates that had all of our, you know, the header in it with all the patient information and all of that. And then a templated area where we could put in our bone marrow reports, our flow cytometry reports. But we would then have to save that onto a flash drive, bring it over to a computer that was physically connected to a local printer to print to be able to fax those results out or deliver them or whatnot. But that was actually the scary part is in trying to interpret cases Without all of the ancillary testing that we are so very, you know, used to integrating together, the histories, does this patient have a history of X, Y, or Z disease? And is this progression or is this de novo? I mean, it really was a bit of a terrifying time in working in a vacuum.
1: Yeah, because when you're interpreting flow, you want to see what the immunophenotype was. And it's different than their prior and not having that, I think, is, is difficult for folks outside of pathology. You know, they often think pathology is a black box, but we definitely use that additional information to make our diagnoses. Andy, I'm curious uh, from the perspective of transfusion, you know, what was the impact on that service line?
3: Yeah. I mean, we were in obviously our downtime mode for during the entire course, we had an entire paper process that we kept, you know, we were pulling patient prior history out where we could, well, we use a different system. So we had some connectivity if you will, we could look up some stuff in our WellSky system. But then again, everything or things were done looking through paper charts. Transfusions had to be phoned in. People were placing orders. The only way to really do was to call the laboratory. I think it's important to recognize that the hospital itself, volume wise, was significantly reduced. They couldn't function at the same level that they wanted to. Alex and I would go to daily huddles for the operating rooms and they were running... Especially early on, at pretty reduced capacity, they didn't know who was coming in for surgeries because they didn't have schedules, right? Oh, wow. All that stuff. They actually turned to us in the blood bank because we preprint schedules a couple of days ahead of time so we can evaluate transfusion needs. So the first few days, they called and said, "Hey, can we have copies of those schedules you printed?" Oh my them? gosh! Hospital, we could have sold them. We could have retired. <laughs> but I mean, so it. So the volume was significantly reduced, and we worked hard to reduce volume. We knew we could not meet demand. Whether it was transfusions or testing or ap work we worked with hospital and our health network leadership to really ask that only patients that had acute medical needs got laboratory testing ordered you know can you postpone your annual lipids obviously if you need your inr check come and get your inr check if you've got tumor serum marker you know measurements to do or whatever but so we worked hard there we had to shut down 25 of our 27 outpatient phlebotomy sites, two purposes. One, again, reduce incoming volume. And number two, we needed the phlebotomist to be at the hospital to do inpatient rounds and draw and to run the busier outpatient phlebotomy sites. These were a lot of tactics that we sort of developed over the course of the first week that we, again, it was survival mode to try to figure out how to do all this. After the systems restarted, it took Blood Bank about six weeks to get all their Blood Bank data inputted back into the system to have all patients and all transfusions accounted for. Alex can speak to the surgical pathology records about what they did to enter data after we went live again. We did not enter all clinical lab medicine into the patient record. It was a conscious decision not to do it. It would have been not timely. It would have created additional patient safety concerns because it would have triggered inbox messages and someone might not have recognized the mismatching dates. So we only did things that we felt were of critical patient importance, obviously infectious disease, COVID tests, all of anatomic pathology, obviously all the heme path and all of transfusion medicine were entered after we went live, which again, took weeks to do it. So...
5: Just to tack onto what Andy was saying is that the attack occurred on the 28th of October in 2020. The EHR didn't come up. And even then, it was a read-only version of the EHR until November 18th. So for that three-ish weeks, the way that, for instance, our schedules were getting produced was there was a single engineer in IT that was logging into the EHR back end, printing out the schedules and handing them the paper off for faxing for weeks. So, you know, as Andy pointed out, the throughput, it was like somebody turned the spigot off and, you know, it wasn't that stuff couldn't get done. It just took a ton of people and it took a lot more time. And we all, I'm not a pathologist, as I think I said at the top of the hour, but I know I went to bed a number of nights going, oh my God, I hope we didn't kill somebody today. Not limiting that thought to just pathology, right? I mean, everyone in the hospital was going through this. I happened to have been having a procedure done on the 29th, so I went through outpatient surgery on the first full day of downtime, and it was a fascinating thing to watch until they gave me the happy drugs, and then everything was fascinating to watch. The old doctors and nurses—by old, I mean people my age, 50 or more—show the the younger ones. Here's how you can process this patient and get through your workflow using a piece of paper and a pen, you know. And where I really went in my head was. It's not going to be too many more years until those people are retired, right, and won't be there. So I actually spent a fair amount of time thinking about something I call hospital in a box, which is the ability to stand up an EHR or an LIS on a standalone device in a matter of hours for when you've determined it's going to be a couple of months until you're back up, you're in a situation we were in, that at least gives you a basic functionality. I can remember at the time, uh, the assistant chair, pathology, and I had been on the job about a month. Stopped me in the hall and, and it's Dr. Lewis. And he said, Yeah, John, what would it take to build us a new LIS if you started on that today? And I was like, You're kidding. Right. And so that's really, I think, one of the things that I took as an action item from the cyber attack that we're going to get done in this fiscal year is to try to prototype. hospital in a box literally it'll sit in a drawer and when you have this kind of situation you take it out you plug some pcs into it and you get your lab running and you have your reference ranges and you have your tests entered into it ahead of time so that you don't have to do qr codes and fax stuff around
1: yeah, throughout the conversation, I just think about how dependent we are on technology. And for those of you who, who like reading fiction, reading things like Station 11 or these dystopian novels where technology goes away and could you survive? I think probably the the closest I've gotten to that in a laboratory setting is volunteering in Cusco, Peru and trying to run a processor from the 1950s and use a pancake riddle and rice cooker to do my embedding things like that and I'm old enough to actually remember having to write actual notes in patient charts. I see some nods so I know I'm not the only one who is uh, at that stage but thinking about doing that on a massive level is interesting. So were there things that surprised you about the experience? And this question is for, you know, anyone
4: speaking of the older generation or the generation that remembers writing in charts. When we went live, I think there were some pathologists that missed the writing of reports, <laughs> missed the relative ease, right? I mean, technology is supposed to make our lives easier, but there were many people who felt comfortable in these new workflows because that's what they've been doing for years. It was like going back to practicing pathology in the 1990s. And so I think some people did lament a little bit and transfer, but at the same time, we also went back to Beaker because we had just gone live with Beaker in 2019. So it was just a year prior and we did not complain at all about Beaker anymore. I mean, everything, (laughs) we were like in love with it. Everything seemed beautiful once we went back up and streamlined workflows and but so that surprised me that people actually did. They were able to find some of the, the positives in it. And I think also the relative challenge of communication and that we really had been so siloed, especially with subspecialty and not able to communicate with each other, which just really was really limiting. And, and being able to develop an incident command structure and a communication, regular short huddles... In the world of days of meetings and dreading meetings, we, we were able to really get to the essential components, really identifying exactly what needed to be done, what needed to be shared. That's two-way communication between staff and, and leaders elsewhere in the hospital. It was really beneficial, actually. That was one of the real positive things that came out of this because we're able to carry that forward and use that in non-
3: non-crisis times. People kept their levity during all this. Alex, will you please tell us <clears throat> the number wheel system that you all elected to use?
4: Uh. The time of, the yeah, of course. And this, will, I love this will highlight
3: kind of how we were feeling at the time.
4: Yeah, I wish we had visuals. So we had to generate a a separate number wheel for all the accession cases that we hand processed in the lab outside of Beaker. And it just had been such a crummy year, right? 2020. And so our normal surgicals are are SUs, SU20 dash, da, 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 da. So we chose FU 20 <laughs> for our <laughs> s- surgical num- number wheel. And it was just, it gave us some joy every single time we wrote up a report just to say that FU 20 and even now, right, you know, to go back to, oh, the prior FU <laughs> <and> 20, <just, laughs> fills us with some happiness.
3: Yeah, you you had to find those moments because again, the year was challenging enough and to throw this on top of it was just unbelievable. The things that really surprised me, and we say this all the time, it's just amazing how when challenged, how people in the laboratory rise to the occasion. You know, I remember reading a David Grogan's book, I don't know if you know who he is. He's this extreme athlete. He was a Navy SEAL. His book is pretty unbelievable to listen to. And he he said that when things are really hard, people always say you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and work harder. And, And his response to that is no, people rely on their skills to get through times like this. They really work, they really rely on their skills and and that's how we got through this. We have a lot of smart people who have a lot of impressive skills that were able to put together operations, who were able to do things on the instruments that they weren't really designed to do, to work as a team, to have those morning huddles, to do all the things that were necessary to get through this unprecedented event. We have downtime procedures. Everybody in laboratory medicine and anatomic pathology has downtime manuals. I think I can honestly say, Most people's downtime procedures are inadequately written to deal with a situation such as this. Ours was, I mean, I can say that straight out of the gate. Most of us deal with downtimes. They're often anticipated downtimes. We get a notification that the system's going to be down or if it's a downtime, it's for a short period of time. And our procedures are written to handle that. Our procedures were not written to deal with this. That's one thing that really sort of struck me. The other thing that really struck me is the laboratory relative to the rest of the whole healthcare, the the whole medical center, the laboratory really kind of got its operations together quickly compared to other areas. Because again, that's what we do. We're operations people. And what we did is we pushed the problem downstream. And what do I mean by that? We were able to process, test, and generate reports. And we flooded the downstream systems with all this paper, with all the reports. And they weren't equipped to file those or get them to the right providers or to all the providers that were taking care of that one patient. Charts were all over the place. And so when you go back and look through the reports that we generated, we documented every time that we reported it and to whom we reported it. There were some labs, there were some CBCs that came out of Joe's section of the lab. We reported 10 times, 10 different people because they didn't have at their fingertips the information they needed And they probably went to look for the chart and the chart wasn't there. So what did they do? They called the lab and said, hey, I need Mr. Smith's CBC report. So we'd go into our file system, we'd pull it out, we'd fax it back or copy it and send it up by runner. So it really was evident to me that the downstream systems were unable to handle the significant amount of data that comes out of the laboratory. That's what we do. We generate data. And so to act on that, it has to be delivered to the end user and the end users had no idea where to find it. Once we put that report out there, I think that's another area that we really need to focus on when we look at our whole downtime process in healthcare. What are you going to do when a laboratory sends you thousands of reports a day? How are you going to manage that data?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think to piggyback off that too, one of the greatest I think surprises for me is how quickly we were able to reestablish a LIS system. So we took a big conference room and put a bunch of filing cabinets in there, and anyone. Who even had, say, five minutes of downtime would come in and just start filing records. And we did it based on patient name, date of birth, MRN, if we had it, and put everything in there. And so each patient had their own folder. And any result that came with a printout that came out from our laboratory got filed alphabetically in this room. And so we just had this huge room with I don't know how many thousands of pieces of paper on it, but how quickly we were able to come up with that system, come up with a filing system and a way to be able to store results that were relatively easily retrievable once we had that system in place. So that when the clinic calls and says, hey, I'm looking for a CDC on John Doe, or the outpatient surgery is looking for results on someone, we're able to very relatively quickly find that particular result and then fax it back to the people that were asking. I think that was quite impressive. So I was off service when the cyber attack happened. When we went down, it was the day after my son's birthday. And so we were like planning birthday parties and doing the whole thing. So I was blissfully ignorant of everything that was going on through that first rest of that week and into the weekend. And by the time I show up on that Monday morning, that whole system was already starting to get in place. So I could walk in and say, what do you need me to do? And there was already something of like, hey, we need to do this. We need someone to do this. There was already a really well-organized system in place four days after things shut down. And that was incredibly impressive to me to come in, not involved in the initial setup, to have something so well organized so early on.
1: And kudos to you for coming back to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not just going, well, got a lot of birthday activities <laughs> gonna, gonna stick around at home here. <laughs>
2: the schemes I'm gonna really keep eating my cupcake. <laughs> no. And it is funny because I think in Heme Path, we were still on that AP mentality of just like hold everything, stop everything until we figure it out. And I remember walking in on that Monday morning and looking at my colleague who had been around the second half of you know the week prior, the end of that prior week. And he goes, all right, I printed out a spreadsheet. I have folders where you can write down the number because we were still a couple of days behind. So we still had cases that had been accessioned the whole thing. He's like, well, we can't sign any of these out yet, but here's a spreadsheet. You can write down the information and we'll just file it in this back shelf. And whenever we're back online, we can then go back through and start just signing them out. And then by the end of that Monday, there were a lot more rumblings that this wasn't going to be a, oh, it'll be back on tomorrow. And they said, oh, wait, we can't just store everything on a shelf until everything is back live and we can sign it out. And that was when I think the the reporting for AP stuff really started to churn, and it really hit home of, oh, wow, we actually need to be able to Get reports out. We can't wait to be able to click the sign out button on the computer. You know.
1: Well, wonderful. We're almost at the top of the hour, and so I guess I'd like to just go around and hear your takeaways, your advice from each of you from the whole experience.
3: To me, the the, the takeaway from this is again what what people will actually do when pressured in the midst of a pandemic post go live of a. Big, huge LIS system a year prior, the fact that people were able to focus and get the work done, it took a toll. I mean, there's no question in my mind, it took a toll on people. After about 10 days into it, we started saying, okay, everybody has to have at least one day off a week. We were looking pretty hard. We started putting together schedules, particularly for a lot of folks on this phone call who were working seven days a week, extended hours. We said, just for your sanity, you have to do this. But we did keep an eye out for each other amidst all this. I think we really remained conscious of what everybody was doing and what they were trying to deal with and really trying to help each other, which was important because a lot of us weren't helping ourselves Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we remained so focused our laboratory. And I think it's a pretty common thing around around the country that laboratorians, they really push, push hard to get the things done. And there's no words to th- say thanks enough to everybody in our laboratory that stood up and did what, what needed to be done. Administrative support, phlebotomy, the, the laboratory medical scientists, the histo technologists, cytopathologists, cytotechnologists. I mean, this was a team sport to get through all of this.
4: Yeah. Thanks, Andy, for reminding me that there were limits, right? I mean, that that was a take home for me. It's so all encompassing that you really do have to set some boundaries and really make sure that everyone has that time to decompress and then bring themselves fully back to work. And the amount of volunteer support that we received from the hospital, but also from all the faculty members. I mean, I remember we did result lookup hours, we would give some hours over the weekend, and I passed the baton to the chair who had signed up for a couple hours over the weekend, right? I mean, we were all pitching in. And I think that it really supported the fact that the wellness piece that we really did need some time to to re-energize. It was a pretty, pretty excruciating (laughs) experience, but a lot of good came out of it too. So the resilience piece is impressive.
2: As a, especially I think as a junior faculty member here too, I am so incredibly grateful for those in leadership positions. You, Andy, you, Alex. I mean, both of you. I think we're just seeing the the work and the energy that you put into this and in establishing something that is so incredibly organized, given the limited information and you know time that we had to respond to this. I think was phenomenal and inspiring, and it makes me realize how key communication is in all of this. and our email was down. Fax machines were down. Printer—I mean, everything was down. And you realize that, oh my goodness! Like I can't communicate. I can't even like if I needed to talk to someone. If I had to talk to Alex in AP, I had to physically walk up the stairs and knock on her door and find her. We couldn't communicate via email, via our normal communication methods. And so it really was a reminder of how dependent we've become on technology. And while it does make our life so incredible easy and efficient, it also is a reminder that it's not the end all be all. And thankfully, we still had cell phone service and that we could still call and text and use apps on our phone to be able to do this. So again, I guess still grateful for technology, even when it fails us in other areas.
5: Yeah, I think the thing that, that I would just tack on that, I would say is, is that healthcare is first and foremost, a people thing. Healthcare continued to be provided at the medical center when the systems were down because of our people. Technology is just an aid and sometimes an inhibitor. But what I took away from was what distinguishes an organization isn't what instruments they buy or how wired up they are technically. It's their people. And that their people can deal with just about anything that comes with them. I mean, strictly speaking strictly from the IT perspective, Andy was talking about the mental toll. You can imagine that the IT engineers who were working seven days a week, at least 18 hours a day to rebuild thousands of systems, had a significant toll on them. They lost a number of people. And so the concern I have is that if this were to happen again, How many people are just going to throw their hands up and turn around and say, there's got to be, I'll go work at McDonald's, right? Because this is just too hard. And so there's a major effort within the hospital now, certainly within IT, but I believe it's more general to rethink a lot of this work-life balance stuff because between COVID and then the cyber attack on top of it, people were openly asking in the hallways "I can receive, you know, how, how how we don't have any more to give. The larder is empty. You know, I, I don't have more emotional bandwidth for this and it wears people down. So be very, very careful what you
0: click on.
1: Thank you so very much to everyone for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you all so much for sharing your stories, your experiences. Certainly have given us so much to reflect on. And definitely one thing that comes out of this is the strength of the laboratory, the strength of the team within it, and your team at Vermont. And I just wanted to say thank you all so much for sharing that with us.
3: We appreciate thank the time and the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks.
1: Thanks for having us.
3: Bye-bye.
0: Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.